0: Well, good morning to you all. Let me uh, welcome you again to Grace Church. Uh, As Mark said a few moments ago, uh, my name is Eric Lipscomb, and I serve as the RUF campus minister at Columbia University over in Manhattan. Uh, It's always uh, a deep joy for me to be with you. Uh, This is maybe the fifth time I've been out, and so uh, thank you for having me today and uh, for hosting me. um, Mark, I know, uh, tells me of just beautiful things that are happening here in Grace Church uh, and through this community, so thank you for letting me be with you today. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, I think there are some maybe in your pews uh, or maybe you have one of your own on your phone, um, you can turn to page 458 of your pew Bible. Um, we're going to look this morning uh, together at Psalm 23. Um, and if you are uh, familiar uh, with Christianity, you've been in church for a long time, you're a Christian, um, then you know this is perhaps one of the most famous psalms. Uh, and my hope is that if that describes you, um, that you would give uh, fresh eyes and fresh ears to what can be something awfully familiar, right? That you would not simply pass over this because you've heard it a lot. Um, And of course, if you're here and you're maybe not a Christian or you're exploring what you think and what you believe about uh, who Jesus is, that uh, I hope you would attend to this so that you can get a deeper uh, sense and experience of who God is and what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus. And so uh, in a moment, we're going to look together at Psalm 23. Um, But first, what are the Psalms? What is uh, the Psalter? Um, I would call these the, the songs that shape us, right? The Psalms are this book in the Bible, kind of in the middle, 150 uh, songs and poems that were given to the people of God. And the way that the ancient Israel used them were as their uh, hymn book, that they would come together in corporate worship and they would sing these songs. And, and if you read through the Psalms, you know that they cover the wide breadth of human emotion, right? You have some Psalms that are Psalms of joy uh, and of delight and of confidence, But then, of course, you have other psalms that are songs of lament and fear and of frustration. And so as we sing these psalms, what I think is beautiful is that they're going to do at least two things for us. And first, they're going to, uh, through them, give us the ability to express our emotions, right? That God is putting onto our mouths the words he wants to hear from us no matter how we are feeling, right? And so God is sort of inviting us in the psalms to bring our full and real and authentic selves before him. And so however you're coming in this morning feeling you know that you can bring that before God. He's giving us the words to express ourselves. But the Psalms don't just express how we feel. They actually shape our feelings. They orient our desires towards God and back towards him. That that, that God would use these songs to shape us more and more into the people he wants us to be. And so today we're going to look, as we said, at Psalm 23. This this psalm by uh, David, the shepherd turned king. And and what we want to sort of look at is is what is this song about? And it's a song of confidence, one in which David shows us what it looks like to have confidence in the God who cares and guides and protects his people. And it's meant to enable us to deepen our trust in this God no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. So why don't we read Psalm 23 together and then afterwards I'll pray for us. So let's read this together. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word remains forever. Would you pray with me now as we look uh, to him? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has not remained silent, but you have spoken to us in and through your word. God, I pray that as we come to you now, um, you would illumine our hearts and open our minds and our ears to hear and receive your truth, um, that we would see the beauty of your love for us and that it would change us, that we would have confidence that you are with us, you guide us and protect us. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> well, uh, this morning I woke up and looked at the calendar app on my phone, and it is in fact the second day of February. Uh, and I don't care what the calendar says, uh, it is my contention that February is the longest month of the year, or at least uh, it, it feels that way to me. I don't, I don't know about you. Um, as I think about where we are in the year, right, the, the joy of the holidays uh, are now well behind us. Uh, you know, we, uh, the days are, are short and they are frigid. Uh, spring feels like it's an eternity away. Uh, You know, tax season is, like, about to be right upon us. February, just, uh, in my experience, is a grind. Every single year, February is a grind. And for many of us, though, um, it is not just February that is a grind, right? The grind is not just confined to this month, however long or short it may be, right? Even if you feel it most acutely now, you know what it's like to wake up with the perpetual to-do list that never seems to get any shorter, Right? Or, or maybe you know what it's like to sit with the pain and the frustration of uh, a relationship with someone you love, someone you care about, that is fractured, that is not um, at the level that you hope it to be. Right? Maybe you know the grind of working long hours. Or maybe you know the grind of not working enough, of, of being unemployed or being underemployed. Right? Maybe you know the grind of constantly chasing kids or grandkids around Going from activity to activity, right? Life can be a grind, this, this grind that we all experience. What do you do with that? Right? What do you do with the weight of this grind? And I think a lot of the times it can be easy for us to just sort of resign ourselves to this, right? to just sort of sit under this weight. Right? You're, you're tired and you're frustrated, and the best you can do is shrug your shoulders and sigh. Right? Or, but for some of us, maybe we've tried to sort of embrace the grind. You know, we, we've leaned into it. Right? You, you've made your mantra, you know, rise and grind. You are leaning into the busyness, the frenetic pace. Right? And, and I suppose that's all well and good, but even the most ambitious extrovert has to get worn down at some point. And so the question is, how are you going to endure the perpetual grind today, this week, throughout the long month that is February? Right? What is going to sustain you for your ongoing life. And I was, I was thinking about this question. You know, I, my, my initial temptation is just to sort of like try to own it, right? Say, I, I've got this. You know, I can do this. I, I, I can handle this. It's sort of this assertion of self-confidence, right? The sort of the Nike mentality, just do it. right? I can do this. I got it. I'm going to pick myself up. I'm going to push myself through, right? Sort of self-confidence. Right? But, but then other times I'm, I'm not feeling so... So confident, and and I'm looking for other ways to find uh, a boost, to give myself a little shot in the arm, right, this breather. Maybe it's a weekend away. Maybe it's a a trip you're looking forward to. Maybe it's a night out on the town with friends, right? Something that's going to give you what you need to push through, right? How are you managing the grind, right? And what I think David wants us to see is that the, the Christian actually has another tool in their belt, Right, that you are given this song here. right, And it's not a song of self-confidence. It's not a song of temporary relief. But it is one of confidence in the God who gives rest to his people. Right, That we are singing as we take this psalm as our own. Of the God who gives rest even in the grind of life. right, Even in the valley of the shadow of death. This God is with you. He is guiding you. He's comforting you. He's protecting you. And so I think Psalm 23 can enable us to endure the grind and challenges of life really by growing your confidence in the Lord. Right? And if you will own this song as your own, you will experience God's faithfulness and his nearness in, in new or in renewed ways, and, and perhaps even ways that are life-changing. And So how does David do this? Right? How does David try to grow our confidence in the Lord? Well, wh- what I think he does is he really just tries to show us God's character and God's goodness, right? And he doesn't do this by, you know, describing God simply with uh, adjectives, right? He actually paints us this sort of dual-paneled painting in Psalm 23, right? He he sort of couples these two images or two metaphors together. And so verses one through four, you have the Lord as our good shepherd, and then uh, verses five through six, the Lord as our generous host. And so really, I want these two pictures this morning to just frame our discussion together, right? The, The Lord as our good shepherd, And the Lord is our generous host. And so um, we're really just going to ask two questions together. And these: One, why does it matter that God is our good shepherd? And then second, how does this generous host give us hope? So why does it matter that God is our good shepherd? And then how does this generous host give us hope? Okay, so first, why does it matter that God is your good shepherd? And really, I think, frankly, just the, the most basic reason is because your life, or at least, my life, does not look anything like these first three verses. I mean, think of it just how He starts, "The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want." And really, if you, there's another translation that translates that, "The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing." Now, I don't know if you knew this, but today, as I mentioned, is February 2nd. It is also one of the high holy days of American culture. Uh, it is Super Bowl Sunday. As, as Mark mentioned, uh, the church is hosting a Super Bowl party, and, and that would be a great way to uh, spend time with some friends and get to know new friends. Um, but, you know, it doesn't really matter if you care about football. Uh, and really, I, I mean, I kind of, I do like football, but uh, really my favorite thing about the Super Bowl is the new ad spots that get put on. And, you know, every um, retailer in the world is clamoring to get into their 30 second spot. And, and really, what these commercials are are just reminders. They're, they're, they're these notions that, like, if you get the right stuff, you will have no more want. Um, right? They're the 30 second reminders of all the things that you were lacking. Right? But, but if you just got this right thing, then you would be fulfilled. Right? If you just used this dating website, if you just bought this hair product. Right? If you would just try the new flavor of Doritos, your life would be complete and fulfilled. Right? But it, you know, it's not just Super Bowl Sunday. It is all the time. Right? The world is constantly pointing out to you all the things and all the ways that you are lacking. Right? And it does offer you hope. But it offers you hope in the form of consumption. Right? Redemption looks like retail therapy. Right? That's what salvation is. That's what will fill you up, at least for a moment. You are always being reminded of everything that you lack. And and, and the world is just sort of pressing on your feelings of emptiness and not having enough. But but contrast that with what David is describing here. What what David is is showing us is this perpetual state of fullness. He says, I have all that I need because God is my source of care and guidance. The Lord is my shepherd. David, who is the former shepherd himself is identifying himself as a sheep under the care of God, right? And and he knows as intimately what a shepherd does. And and I know that the the idea of a shepherd maybe isn't a familiar uh, metaphor for all of us, but for David, he would have known that this was an incredibly intimate metaphor because a a shepherd would have lived among the sheep, right? Slept out in the pasture with his flock. He would have cared for them. He would have provided for their needs. He would have defended them from uh, wolves and, and, and other predators, Right? And it is the Lord who is making him lie down in Greek pastures, making him lie down beside still waters, who is restoring his soul. Right? And what David wants to do for us is to um, to sort of stir our hearts, to envision what a life could look like under the care and provision and protection of this God could be. Right? And so he starts by envisioning David. Um, env- David envisions God as a shepherd. Right? It's meant to... Uh, uh, convey intimate care, right? God is near and he is involved in your life, right? And he's pushing back against any notion that God is somehow distant from you. He's pushing back on any sort of notion that, you know, to say uh, you believe in God or you know God is just to sign on to the dotted line of a certain set of propositional truths. Right? He's saying, look, God is the one who takes you by the hand. God is the one who's bringing you to the place of refreshment. Like, notice just that in the first couple of verses, God is the main actor, he makes, he leads, he restores, right? God is the subject here. And what that means is that then you and I are the direct object of God's love, of his care, and of his restoration. All right, now let me, let me just pause there for a moment um, because I, I think for some of us, um, you can read these verses, or, or sometimes depending on my state, I will read this, and it really just doesn't land like It just doesn't hit home with me. And, and I think sometimes that is that's quite understandable because so much of the time, my life, again, doesn't look or feel like this landscape, right? It doesn't feel like green pastures. It doesn't feel like still waters. It doesn't feel or look like restoration. I mean, there are many times where my life is just laughably dissonant with what I read here in Psalm 23, right? I am somebody, and maybe you are like this, who's constantly on the move right, between work or travel, worrying about the future, or right? whatever it is that you have on your plate. And so this place here that David is describing is, is is you know, almost incomprehensible, right, this place of peace and serenity. And so we can be tempted to just look at this and treat it with a little bit of a brush off, right, like, wow, that must be nice. I would love to be there, but who has time? Right? Who can go there, right? Our, our sort of can't stop, won't stop, pace, can make it hard to imagine an alternative. And yet in that, maybe we never even stop to consider the question, why? Right? Why doesn't my life look like this scene? And, and I'm sure there are you know, multiple ways you could answer that question. Right? Why does my life not look like this psalm? But I think at least part of the reason for, for, for many of us is that we just don't uh, we're uneasy with some of the stillness, right? We can, we can be people who sort of pride ourselves on being busy. We can pride ourselves on doing a lot. If, if you are busy, if you look busy, if you have a full calendar, no one can accuse you of being unimportant, right? Maybe you busy yourself to paper over feelings of insecurity or insignificance. Right, maybe you numb your restless heart with busyness of just doing and doing and doing more. Right, our lives do not look necessarily like the contentment of verse 1. It doesn't look like the peace and rest of verses 2 and 3. But David is saying it could. Right, he's saying, look, in a world that shouts at you to hurry up and matter, right, David is inviting you to be still and know. Be still and know that I Am your God, that I am your shepherd. And he's saying, God is the one who will guide you and who will give you rest. Right? And, and notice that that is just totally independent of your life circumstances. Right? In in verse 4, the sort of the scene shifts a little bit. And David now finds himself in the valley of dark shadow, or the valley of the shadow of death. Right? He, he's left the serenity of the meadow. He finds himself now in this dark and difficult place. And yet he knows that God has not abandoned him. And in fact, in that moment, he actually leans in closer to God. He stops referring to the Lord as he and starts referring to him as you. Right? He said, God is my shepherd. He's gone from leading me out front to now walking with me side by side in the midst of the grind, in the midst of this hard place. Right? There's something this beautifully personal about the God who's pictured here. Now, I don't, and I don't know about you, but I just I, I see this and I deeply appreciate the honesty here because in Psalm 23, you know, David isn't offering us the promise of a comfortable or an easy life. Right? But what he's saying is that even in the face of hardship, under the weight of the grind of life, at this point of danger or of fear or uncertainty, he knows that God is near. He is remaining close to him even in this dark place, right? That God is the one who is protecting him. Right, he has these tools uh, that protect the sheep from its predators. Right? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right, and so if God is the good shepherd, if he is the one who protects his people, then the question for us is this. Are you going to follow him? Right, will you follow God or are you trying to go your own way? Right, will you follow the good shepherd as he directs you what, towards what verse 3 calls these paths of, of righteousness or these right paths, right? Will you take God's moral direction to you as a blessing and not a burden, right? Will you look to his commands as God's gracious provision to show you how to live in the world that he has made, right? Will you take God's word in the Bible seriously? Will you heed his instruction even if it's unpopular, even when it is countercultural, right? Will you follow the good shepherd or will you go your own way, Right. Now, what does it look like to follow him? Well, just for the moment, I will mention one thing that I think uh, pertains particularly to this passage, and that's this. You know, in, in Exodus 20, if you, if you read that, the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment, right, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's this day of rest and worship unto the Lord. Right. Are you willing to rest? Right. We, we can struggle sometimes, again, in the busyness and the hecticness of the grind to make this a priority. Right? But how can we be expected to find this quiet place by the still waters if we are in perpetual motion? I often think that when I'm feeling um, distant from God, I wonder if it's, it's a function of my own busyness, of my own restlessness, of my own unwillingness to rest and to lean into the fabric of the world that God has created. Right? God commands rest for us. But He does so with this, this promise that He will provide it for you in abundance, that you can place your confidence in His care for you, right? And so, our confidence is ultimately in God's guidance and protection, right? He is in, David is inviting us to know God's shepherd like care, and protection and guidance. But it's not only as a shepherd that God um, is envisioned here. It's not just as a shepherd, right? The the sort of verse four, the end, the sort of curtain closes, and when it reopens, uh, in verse five, the scene. Uh, the act has now changed, and and instead of finding ourselves out in the meadow, we find ourselves in this ornate banquet hall, where we find ourselves in a place uh, where a, a feast is spread before us, and what we see is that God is now not just the good shepherd, but he is the generous host of this amazing party, and so how does that generous host give us hope? Well, if you were to uh, peruse my family's Netflix feed, um, one of the things you would notice is that there's a high percentage of uh, British period pieces uh, that that we uh, tend to watch. I think that is mostly my wife. Uh, the Crown, most recently, has been what we've been watching. But before that, uh, we, we, something we watched and actually enjoyed together uh, was Downton Abbey. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with the show uh, Downton Abbey. But if, if you've seen it, um, you know, Downton is this grand... An amazing uh, mansion, castle, whatever you want to call it, and and every night uh, the family comes together and sits down for these elaborate dinners. Right, that the, you know your ordinary Tuesday is the occasion for uh, you know a meal that is nicer than anything I've ever had before. Um, but what happens though if you continue watching these stories? Is that every once in a while, an honored guest comes to Downton. Right, somebody uh, honored comes to. The, uh, the, the mansion, and, and when that happens, you know, it like, gets cranked up to 11, right, turned up a notch. Right? All of a sudden, um, what was an incredible feast becomes like a once-in-a-lifetime event, right? It becomes extravagantly lavish, right, that, 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 that they break out the fine silver, and Mrs. Patmore is, you know, buzzing around downstairs, going crazy, trying to make this 20-course meal for everybody. And, you know, Mr. Carson is, is, is buzzing around. They, they've hired extra footmen to serve all the people and the finest wines and the most decadent desserts are brought out. And then afterwards, there's live music and there's dancing. Right? It's this amazing scene. It's this extravagant feast for an honored guest. And I really think that's sort of the picture that David wants us to see here. Right? This is an extravagant feast. Right? But who is the honored guest? Right? It's you. Right? God is throwing this party. For you. Right? He says he will anoint your head with oil, right? The sign of blessing and refreshment. It says, your cup is overflowing, right? Imagine the best and most expensive wine you've ever had. And and your your glass is just brimming to the top. It is sloshing around. Right? And and it doesn't even matter because there's so much of it that you could never possibly deplete God's supply. Right, it is this vivid picture of God's extravagant and excessive grace. Right? You are getting so much more than just the bare essentials. Right? This is a party that is grand and bordering on wasteful, right? It is like almost embarrassingly excessive. But it is that which is a picture of God's abundant generosity towards you and towards me and towards his people. Right? And what David wants you to see is that you haven't just at this point, survived the grind. Right? You haven't just survived the threat of the valley. Right here, that grind has somehow become the road to victory and to rejoicing. Right? And did you notice who was present at this banquet, at this feast? He says, verse 5: You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right now, who are those enemies? Well, David doesn't really say, you know, it may be the case that they are. Uh, external foes. Um, David certainly had plenty of people chasing after him, antagonists. They may be false friends. Uh, maybe they are internal struggles, uh, maybe fear and loneliness and insecurity. David sort of leaves it ambiguous, but, but the thing is that those, ambig- um, those enemies who are there, whoever they are, whatever they are, they are sitting and they are watching you be treated like royalty. And they cannot do anything to stop the generous host. The victory has been won and the celebration is on. Those enemies may still try to taunt you, but they can't touch you. And so this is this vision of what eternal life with God is like. He is the gentle shepherd. But he is also the generous host who wants nothing more than to celebrate you. David is saying, look, this is where life with God is. Is headed. This is what he's inviting us to envision: how God is repairing today's brokenness and moving us all towards wholeness. And so we need this as our hope. And and really, we need this because you know the full realization of this will not happen in this life. Right? We are not home yet. And so, how does God sustain us in the meantime? Well, if you, it, just sort of how he ends, verse six: Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Right, and and this, this word mercy, when it's thrown in here, it's sort of this, this the notion of God's delight, uh, his steadfast love being with you ever presently, right? all the days of your life. And what's interesting is that, that if, um, if you were to look at this passage in the, its original Hebrew, there's, there's what most scholars believe a little bit of a play on words. And so uh, when it talks about, you know, I shall not want, this want is this word haser, uh, and, and this word mercy is the word hesed. And, and so it's, it's as if the, your hasir, your want, has been replaced with hesed, with God's steadfast love and mercy, where your lack has been filled up with the Lord's steadfast love. And it's amazing, but on honest reflection, I look at this and say, like, wh- what have I done to deserve this feast, to deserve this celebration? Right? And the answer is Nothing. Or that it is actually given to me and given to you, despite and in spite of your failures, and your wanderings. Or that David again has sort of called himself, named himself as a sheep under the care of God. And if you think about that, just you know, the comparison to a sheep—that uh, is not a favorable thing. <laughs> right, right. Sheep are kind of stinky. They are uh, vulnerable. They're followers. They're they're kind of dumb. And when, when, uh, you know, the the prophet Isaiah in Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53 says, you know, we all like sheep have gone astray, right? We left to ourselves are people who are foolish enough or ignorant enough to wander away from this God, to wander away from the good, generous host, right? We avoid him. We avoid the abundance he has. We avoid the feast that he offers. We try to find fulfillment in the things of this world, And really, when the Bible talks about the heart of sin, that's what it says it is, right? It is sort of this placing of confidence in myself and in my own abilities to make life for myself instead of looking to God, right? Instead of living according to God's plan, I live according to my plan, right? It's not thy will be done, Lord, but it is my will be done, right? Walking away, wandering away from God like a sheep, the heart of sin in the Bible. We, like sheep... We go astray. Like ungrateful children, we forget or we don't acknowledge this God. We don't see his generosity towards us. And yet, how does he repay our unfaithfulness? He meets us with this lavish grace, with this amazing forgiveness. And he invites us to return to him to find this kind of rest and delight. Now, how is that even possible? Well, I think it's possible because what David uh, ultimately points us to is he gives us these words, he gives us this picture that's ultimately going to find its fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Right? You may have heard um, our, our scripture reading earlier today from John 10, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. Right? I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. When you were wandering away, he pursued you. He left the 99 to go after the one and brought you home. That Jesus would pay the cost of your wanderings on the cross by his own death. And that now by his spirit, he would give you uh, that presence to comfort you, to guide you, to protect you. As an assurance that the salvation he has promised will one day come to fruition, that by his death and resurrection, Jesus would secure your seat at the Father's eternal banquet table, right? That when Revelation pictures heaven, Revelation 19 says heaven is the marriage feast of the lamb. It is this extravagant, lavish feast, right? That his resurrection from the grave is the first fruits of this day uh, when we will feast and weep no more as we will sing in a little bit. When every tear will be wiped away from your eyes. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more grind. And so that's why, friends, we can sing this song together. We can sing along with David, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a joy, what a hope to have before us. And so, friends, if Christ Jesus is your shepherd, then you can sing this song confidently. Right, that you can know the Lord will deal tenderly with you and will ultimately vindicate you. Right, that you can know you are the direct object of the Lord's love, this good shepherd's care. You know that you are the honored guest of the most generous host. Would we be people who look to Jesus to endure the grind of life, the grind of February? Would we allow this God to guide you to the still waters of his grace and to enjoy, enjoy the abundant blessings of of his rich love. Why don't we pray that the Lord would enable us and help us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need a deep sense of this truth. Lord, we thank you that you are our good shepherd and that you are the generous host who invites us to feast with you. And God, I pray that as we sit in the grind of life, as we um, endure hardship, as we endure pain, as we endure difficulty, that you would remind us of this beautiful Um, and and life-giving truth. Um, God, would you help us to rest in the midst of busyness? Would you help us to not find um, our significance in in the things of this world, to not paper over our insecurities um, by filling our calendars? But Lord, would you help us to look to you to find our rest in you? Uh, Would you lead us by the still waters to know that we will dwell in your house forever? Lord, we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.